This is the Canadian Taxpayers Federation podcast. We're dedicated to lower taxes, less waste, and more accountable government. Today, I'm joined by two of my friends and colleagues. Franco, you're holding down the fort as our federal director there in Ottawa. And Nicholas, he is our Quebec director. Now, why do we have a kid from Alberta and a kid from Quebec here together? Because we all get screwed over by the carbon tax. So, Franco, this was kind of a bombshell for the CTF. Mm. Next year, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is going to force everyone to pay a higher carbon tax rate. But this is the problem between all of us here on this call. <laughs> One province is getting special treatment. Break it down for us. Yeah, I mean, all provinces are equal. But one <laughs> province is a little more equal in the eyes of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And that's because Trudeau is requiring taxpayers in nine provinces to pay a higher federal carbon tax than what he's requiring in Quebec. So here's how it all works. Trudeau has a mandatory minimum carbon tax rate. Either you pay his federal carbon tax or a province has to imp impose a provincial carbon tax that is at least as high as Trudeau's mandatory minimum. So Trudeau's mandatory minimum next year will cost about 14 cents per liter of gas. And every single province, well, every province but Quebec, will have to pay that carbon tax next year. It's going to go up to about 37 cents per liter of gas by 2030. So now Trudeau is going to be forcing taxpayers in every other province but Quebec to pay this higher carbon tax. But Quebec taxpayers or Quebec drivers, they won't have to pay as high of a carbon tax. All right. So uh, for normal people at 14 cents a liter, that's about 10 bucks every single time you're filling up your minivan across Canada, other than in Quebec. So this put the fox among the pigeons here. Nick, what's the deal with Quebec's carbon tax? Can you explain it to us? Yeah, uh, well, uh, for those, those who doesn't know, Quebec has its own provincial cap and trade carbon tax. The way that it works is that the government caps the level of emissions that, and then allows the companies to uh, to exchange and trade with each other to produce emissions or and reduce them uh, over time. It's a complicated way uh, for Quebec to say that it has its own provincial gas tax, uh, carbon tax, sorry. But the, the difference here is that it's a lower carbon tax than the one that you're paying under the federal carbon tax. To give you an example, Quebec provincial cap and trade carbon tax currently costs approximately nine cents a liter uh, per, per liter of gas and must stay above 4.8 cents a liter due to a, a minimum price on carbon. Uh, but the thing is, by 2030, based on the current projection, we should be paying up to 23 cents on the carbon tax per liter of gas. Okay, so let me just break down the comparison apples to apples side by side. <laughs> Trudeau's carbon tax rate next year, beginning in 2020 or beginning in 2023, different times in different provinces, must be paid by nine provinces, every province but Quebec. Okay, so in the nine provinces, it's going to cost 14 cents per liter of gasoline. In Quebec next year, the carbon tax just has to stay above five cents per liter of gasoline, right? We're all equal, some just a little bit more equal than others. Now in 2030, Trudeau's carbon tax rate in nine provinces, 37 cents per liter of gasoline. Oh. Quebec's provincial carbon tax, 23 cents per liter of gasoline. So can you see that there is clearly a fundamental unfairness with Trudeau's carbon tax regime? 
Yeah, for sure. It looks completely lopsided and unfair, but unfortunately we've been down this road before when it comes to picking and choosing winners and losers as provinces go. No offense to anybody actually personally on this call. This is all government. So what reason, what reason, Franco, did the Trudeau government actually give uh, when they tried to explain why everyone has to pay a higher carbon tax other than Quebec? Good one. That's a good one. What reason did they give? They haven't given a reason. <laughs> no, of course not. Because uh, I know, said look, so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Look, they, they, they want to sweep this under the rug. They want Canadians not to notice. They want Canadians to not be paying attention to this fundamental unfairness. But guess what? The Canadian Taxpayers Federation and our supporters are paying attention. We are seeing what's going on now look some people on social media the social media keyboard warriors i've seen them all over twitter for example screaming but franco but franco is because quebec has a a cap and trade provincial carbon tax okay but hold on a second that doesn't pass the sniff test that doesn't check out because nova scotia also has right now a similar provincial cap and trade carbon tax as quebec nova scotia has reduced its emissions by 36% since 2005. But Trudeau didn't care. He just recently, the Trudeau government just recently announced that they wouldn't allow Nova Scotia's provincial cap-and-trade carbon tax, even though it's similar to Quebec's, and that they'd be forcing Nova Scotians to to be paying the higher Trudeau mandatory minimum carbon tax. Now, here's the thing. Trudeau is punishing Nova Scotians, but he should be asking asking Nova Scotians for advice because they've done a good job reducing emissions, even though Nova Scotia has uh, the by far the lowest carbon tax on gasoline in Canada. Now let's look at the West Coast, the left coast, Chris's former home, where you have <laughs> British Columbia that had the highest carbon tax in Canada for years, but emissions continued to go up. Of course, emissions also went up during the first year of Trudeau's national carbon tax. Mm -hmm. So what does this tell us, Simmer? This tells us that Trudeau's carbon tax was always about politics, not the environment. Yeah, for sure. It has no bearing. It doesn't. All you have to do is look at the states. They have no federal carbon tax there. They've actually reduced their emissions. How? Because they've largely switched over to natural gas. As far as numbers go, I do want to point out that folks in Atlantic Canada, a lot of us who you know spent more time in Ottawa or out west, probably don't realize this. So many folks in Atlantic Canada rely on home heating oil still. Like outside of the downtown big city in, in Halifax, there are so many homes that still have, it's called furnace oil. They still rely on that or propane. Folks, if you're listening in Atlantic Canada, you're going to get nailed with this carbon tax starting next year. So we see that it has no rhyme and reason when it comes to emissions. We know it's going to cause people to pay through the nose and we know it's all about politics. What's the solution here? What do we want to see from this? Well, in a perfect world, I would I would like to have no carbon tax nor any cap and trade yeah. carbon tax. Uh, but what we want here is that we want Quebecers, we want to, to warn Quebecers that Trudeau is going to rise their carbon tax in Quebec next. Uh, as my colleague Franco just said, uh, if he was able to, to do it in Nova Scotia and everywhere else, what is stopping him from rising the carbon tax in Quebec next? Uh, so we need our Quebec politicians, uh, both MNAs and MPs, to stick up and to and to fight for us and, all, and to make sure that they fight against Ottawa 
that was intrusion and tax hikes the way that uh, actually the way that uh, Premier Legault did in 2019. Back then, the Quebec government on, uh, with the government of Alberta, Ontario and Saskatchewan went in front of the Supreme Court to fight against the federal carbon tax. Of course, we know the results now. But the thing is, back then, he already made a case uh, and uh, would just quote his word. We think it should be up to the provinces and only up to the provinces to decide how to apply a cost to carbon. So that, that was true in 2019, and it's even truer now. And that's exactly what we would expect from our politicians uh, like Premier Legault, our MNAs, and our federal MPs. We have to push back and make sure that the federal carbon tax does not happen in Quebec. Simmer, let me just yeah. chime in here uh, for yeah. a quick second, right? Because look, taxpayers, e even in the other nine provinces, like this isn't about being angry with Quebec. We want all of our politicians to fight for taxpayers and to make sure the federal government isn't soaking us, right? So here's what we want. The problem is with Trudeau. <laughs> and we think this the solution is pretty simple. Scrap the carbon tax, ax the carbon tax, get rid of it so we can finally lower gas prices and heating bills across the country. Yeah, agreed. Um, and that way it's equal too. And we won't have this infighting or pitting other provinces against each other and all that nonsense. I, I want to raise this with you, Franco and Nick, feel free to chime in here because it's bugging the heck out of me. It's this constant refrain that we are hearing from the federal government, from the Trudeau government. And unfortunately, through some people who've been duped by this government, who say something like that, like, Oh, sure. We pay the carbon tax, but just wait, you get more back than you pay mm -hmm. into the carbon tax. So number one, just we know that's silly. The government does not have like a money appreciation machine. So just on the math side, that's not going to work. But how on the scale of, you know, one to Santa Claus, how made up is that phrase of we're going to get more back than you pay in? Yeah, I'd probably say it's about a Rudolph. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, look, it's uh, it's totally incorrect. If you think that the government is going to tax everyone, then skim some off the top to pay for their oodles of bureaucrats and then somehow make everyone better off through rebates. Well, then I've got some Oceanside property in Regina that I want to sell you. <laughs> but hey, <laughs> don't take my word for it, right? Look at the parliamentary budget officer. That's the, yeah. go the government's own nonpartisan independent budget watchdog. And the PBO says that the government's claim is really using magic math, okay? Next year, the carbon tax will cost the average household, depending on what province uh, you live in, anywhere between 400 bucks all the way up to $847, even after the rebates. So next year, it'll cost the average family hundreds of dollars. That's one year, hundreds of dollars, even after including the rebates. But <clears throat> look, I even see some uh, some of the, the keyboard warriors out there on Twitter try to argue that like carbon taxes aren't inflationary. So let me just address <laughs> that. The whole point of the carbon tax is inflationary. The whole point of the carbon tax is to rise the price of gasoline or to increase home heating bills. That's the whole point. So every time Trudeau is driving in the car, driving past the shell that shows the higher gas prices, he must be patting himself on the back because the whole point of the carbon tax is to increase the cost of living. Exactly. And folks, you can't hammer that home enough. Thank you for that, Franco. This is a feature, not a bug. Okay, so the next time, especially a federal politician puts their hands up in the air and they're in government, they say, oh, my goodness, look at the cost of energy. Dude, they made it that way. This is the whole plan. They wanted to make it so 
you find it unaffordable to fill up your car with gasoline or diesel, and you find it unaffordable to heat your home with natural gas, propane, or furnace oil. The real nasty rub here is that what's the alternative? There isn't an affordable, abundant, available alternative for most working people in Canada. So at this point, it's just punishment for using an essential, and I'm going to borrow your term here, Franco, inelastic demand for energy here. So, right? So folks, this just amounts to punishment for heating your home, living, eating groceries and driving to work. Uh, thank you both gentlemen, Nicholas and, and Franco for highlighting this. Uh, folks, keep up the fight. I'm really serious about this because when push comes to shove, these politicians are ultimately worried about their own necks and their own jobs. So take a look at your home heating bill. Take a look at your price at the gas pump and you send them an email and you say, you know what? I'm scared about not being able to afford to heat my home this winter. And if you don't do something about this, I'm not only going to vote against you. I'm going to get all my friends and neighbors together to door knock against you in your riding. I promise you that they will definitely get attention for that. Uh, Folks, thank you so much for this. And uh, check out our website, taxpayer.com for more. I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Mr. Robin Spear. He's holding down the fort there in the prairies. Robin, I'm over here looking at what's going on in Ottawa with this gun ban and buyback program. Uh, We also see that there's a handgun freeze, but it looks like the feds are now going to be banning even more guns. What's going on? Yeah, it's incredible, Franco. The feds have just decided uh, arbitrarily and last minute to ban thousands of long guns, which will criminalize probably well over a million Canadians. So the feds have decided that that uh, old bird gun of your grandfather's that he's been using uh, to hunt and on farm for decades in the country Uh, That is now going to be defined as a weapon of war designed for the battlefield, as uh, certain MPs keep saying in Ottawa. The government is going to prohibit that old gun and ban hundreds of thousands, if not probably well over a million legally obtained firearms from law-abiding Canadians. Uh, They're banning hunting firearms that have been used safely and responsibly for decades that legally obtained property used safely on farm uh, and in the country. So... You're right, Franco. Ottawa is really sowing confusion uh, with all of these different types of firearms rules. They seem to keep making up on the fly. Uh, This ever-expanding ban and buyback scheme, it's an expensive policy. It's going after law-abiding Canadians. Uh, It's going to do nothing to target gangs and violent criminals using guns that are already illegal in Canada. All right, so so let's unpack this a little bit more for our listeners because we've been hammering this Trudeau gun ban and buyback for a long time. You know, it's a, it's expensive, it's ineffective, it's going to be a taxpayer boondoggle. But what's new here? Like, what is the news that our supporters need to know about? Yeah, that's that's a good point. Um, you know, and nobody really seems to know right now. That's what's so bizarre about this, including the government members uh, who are making these amendments. So this new firearms ban uh, that we keep hearing about uh, recently, it's an amendment brought forward from a government member of parliament from Toronto. He brought this amendment uh, to the House of Commons Public Safety Committee uh, just recently in in, uh, mid-November. It's hundreds of pages long. It lists thousands of firearms that they now want to ban. So it's bizarre. You know, here we have a government member of parliament amending the government bill uh after witnesses and testimony have already occurred at public safety committee further like you said in your question franco this this bill that's being amended is bill c21 which 
many of our listeners will know as the handgun freeze bill. That's different than the buyback program that the feds announced back in 2020. That government ban and buyback scheme from 2020, uh, they listed more than 1,500 models that they deemed scary looking, you know, aesthetically or cosmetically, calling them military assault style firearms. That was the one where this past summer, uh, they came up with a price list for compensating owners of these firearms. And there's still a lot of uncertainty on that program, um, but we know it's going to cost taxpayers somewhere in the hundreds of millions, conservatively, uh, to probably well over a billion dollars. And we know that from the parliamentary budget officer who did an estimate on that program. So what's new now? What we're talking about today is this last minute amendment to the handgun freeze bill that is going to prohibit most likely well over a million rifles and shotguns. And those are used for hunting, used on farm. Um, currently, they're either defined as non-restricted or restricted firearms. This amendment is going to make them prohibited, which means they can't be used. And, you know, just, just one key point for uh, some people unfamiliar with guns. This is not the stuff you see on TV, like machine guns or automatic weapons in the movies. Um, those don't exist in Canada. They've been banned in Canada and haven't been in use here for more than half a century. But what it does mean is that hunters, farmers, sports shooters, they're not going to be able to use those same guns they've been safely using for generations. Uh, and either they're going to have to have them locked up permanently or perhaps the government is going to move to confiscate them. So if those guns in this new amendment do become part of this buyback scheme, it's going to cost taxpayers hundreds of millions of dollars more, if not billions, almost certainly billions. So this is just, you know, it's another giant federal boondoggle waiting to happen while doing absolutely nothing to reduce illegal gang activity and violent crime in Canada. You know, uh, even if you're not a gun owner, it really matters to you just as a taxpayer, if, if for not other reasons. And you referenced the parliamentary budget officer. I mean, they put out a, a big report a little while ago. I remember going over it and they say the cost just to reimburse gun owners could be up to $756 million. Now, the key word is that that is just to reimburse the gun owners, just to give them some cash for the property. Um, but yeah. that doesn't include what could be the biggest cost of the program, which is staffing and administration. You know, you have some smart folks um, who, who have actually crunched the numbers and they think that when you actually add up all of the staffing and administration costs, it's going to bring this uh, gun ban and buyback boondoggle up to the billions and billions of dollars. Now, you know, I said, I'm not yeah. a gun guy, Robin. I, uh, you know, I like to say that I'm from Alberta. My family's in Alberta. My heart's in Alberta, but really I'm just some dorky guy with circle glasses living in downtown Ottawa. Man, I don't even know what I would do with a gun, but I have to ask you for our listeners who do and who are worried about their guns or their property, what specifically, like, what are we talking here? What type of gun? So break it down for our listeners and uh, keep it simple for guys like me. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll we'll get you out here to Saskatchewan, uh, Franco, for some hunting before uh, before the feds try to ban it altogether. Um, you know, those numbers you're talking about from the PBO, that's 756 million for the guns plus billions for administration. Again, that's just that buyback that was announced in 2020. So this is a whole new uh, ballgame here. Wow. And uh, yeah, what it means is let's let's start with that amendment. So the amendment itself is simple. Um, I've got it here in front of me. Let me just read it real quick. Um, the amendment from this uh, Toronto Member of Parliament is, quote, 
a firearm that is a rifle or shotgun that is capable of discharging center fire ammunition in a semi-automatic manner and that is designed to accept a detachable cartridge magazine with a capacity greater than five cartridges of the type for which the firearm was originally designed. So that's it. But what that amendment means is that all of those firearms would become prohibited. They're currently restricted or non-restricted for hunters, for on-farm, as I mentioned. Prohibited is what the uh, federal government wants. So they're going to prohibit hundreds, actually thousands of more models of rifles and shotguns, uh, taking them from law-abiding Canadians, including uh, more than a million legally licensed Canadian farmers, hunters, and sport shooters. So this this amendment, you know, it comes uh, after, like I said, the witness testimony has already been heard. It's last minute. It's 11th hour stuff here. And remember the bill, Bill C-21, the handgun freeze. This was about banning handguns and keeping streets safe from gang crime and violence. There was no mention of long guns like hunting rifles that are now in this, this amendment. You know, you can go back to Prime Minister Trudeau himself said, I've got the quote here as well. Uh, Trudeau said, quote, we're not targeting law-abiding citizens who own guns to go hunting and for sport shooting. That was in February 2021. So that's completely out the window now with this government amendment, banning guns like some of these hunting rifles. Um, they're just not the firearms used by gangs in the criminal activity that they're they're talking about. You know, and further to that point, on the original ban and buyback scheme you were talking about, Franco, the National Police Federation, uh, that's the union that represents RCMP officers in Canada, they stated that the federal gun ban and buyback will, and I have this quote as well, quote, do very little to address their goal to increase public safety, diverts extremely important personnel, resources, and funding away from addressing the more immediate and growing threat of criminal use of illegal firearms. You know, even at this committee just last week, there's a member of parliament on the committee who is a police officer for 35 years before becoming an MP. Uh, and he said just last week, quote, this is not an amendment that will do anything for public safety. So the feds want to expand the ban and buyback uh, like this will just be massive cost to taxpayers while not making the streets uh, any safer at all, um, which, you know, several provinces have now uh, echoed as well. I'm glad you brought up the provinces uh, because we know that pro there were some provinces who were fighting. I don't know. Let's call it the first gun ban and buyback program. Yeah. <laughs> um, but what's ha happening now with this uh, with this new 11th hour amendment? Are, are some of the provinces still fighting it? What are they saying? Yeah, big time. No, that's a great, great question, Franco. Several provinces have come out to oppose uh, this expanded gun ban as they did the first, as you mentioned. So Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba. Uh, the three prairie provinces actually got together, put out a joint statement um, just a few days ago saying this punishes law-abiding Canadians. Uh, it's not going to do anything to go after real criminals and deter gang violence. It does nothing to focus on the illegal guns and smuggling, uh, bringing guns in from out of the country. Uh, and in fact, some federal uh, politicians were not truthful when they said that they'd never go after farmers, hunters, and target shooters, which uh, now they're quite obviously going to do. So this amendment is is far in excess of how Bill C-21 was pitched, targeting the sale of Canadian handguns. There was never any mention of long guns. Um, you know, and actually Premier Scott Moe here in Saskatchewan, um, their government made a motion in the ledge to uh, look at all options available to protect the legal rights of gun owners in the province. Um, the Premier here said this, this would overnight 
affect up to 75% of all firearms in the province um, could be at risk of becoming illegal. Um, and again, you know, the amendments don't target illegal firearms. Uh, and it shows just, you know, a, a further disconnect between the feds and and uh, the reality of legal firearms owners in Saskatchewan and for that matter, uh, right across Canada. So what happens next? Well, um, as I mentioned, there's still there's still an awful lot of questions on what this ban would mean, uh, including if and when it would uh, be part of this buyback scheme. Uh, they're debating the amendment right now. Uh, and the entire bill at Public Safety Committee in Ottawa, with uh, officials uh, there trying to uh, trying to understand and explain what's happening in the amendment and the bill, from uh, you know public safety, the Department of Justice, the firearms program, lots of unanswered questions right now on the intention of the bill and what is the cost going to be to uh, to taxpayers. So, you know, it's in committee now, which after it's done at committee. Uh, it'll go back to the House for a vote and then, of course, uh, on to the Senate if it passes there. So if you're a law-abiding firearms owner in Canada, if you're a hunter, a farmer, a sports shooter, uh, and just as a taxpayer in Canada, now is the time to speak up on this. Get in touch with your own MP, these MPs on uh, Public Safety Committee, uh, this Toronto MP whose amendment it is. Uh, the ministers responsible for those departments as well. You know, they they need to hear from you, these politicians in Ottawa. As, uh, as law-abiding Canadian firearms owners directly affected and as all Canadian taxpayers who are going to wear this to the tune of billions of dollars uh, to, to no effect on uh, crime in Canada. Well, Robin, man, thanks for, thanks for just keeping an eye on here. I know some of this can uh, be about as clear as mud, but you're doing a good job holding these guys accountable. But hey, let me just echo something that Robin mentioned. Uh, even if you're a taxpayer, you know, I don't have a gun. I'm just one of those taxpayers. But this is a taxpayer boondog in the making. It is extremely expensive. It's going to be extremely expensive, and it's not going to do anything to make Canada safer. We've even heard from the Mounties Union that this could make Canada less safe by diverting resources away from the true issues. So people, speak up, contact your member of parliament, contact these members of parliament on the committee. I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Carson Benda, holding down the fort in beautiful British Columbia. Now, Carson... We always hear stories about politicians wanting to milk taxpayers, but actually something kind of good was happening in BC there for a second. We had a politician who was trying to take less from taxpayers. What was going on there? Well, Franco, a politician trying to save us money might sound a little bit crazy, like pigs learning to fly or hell, the Canucks winning the uh, Stanley Cup this year. That's exactly what's happening in British Columbia right now. Opposition MLA Todd Stone brought forward a private member's bill to freeze politician pay. It would kill the $10,000 pay raises we're going to see this April. The government, unfortunately, the government killed it. The government wouldn't even allow the bill to be brought up for debate. Last Thursday, we had the last sitting of the Legislative Assembly for this year. And without having debated the bill, it's going to be wiped from the order paper on the first day of the next sitting in February. So the politicians, they're giving themselves a $10,000 raise. They heard from uh, thousands and thousands of our supporters across British Columbia asking them just to debate the bill. But all our supporters heard back, Franco, was crickets. Now, thanks to our supporters, this has been all over the news here in BC, but the government isn't uh, isn't allowing this bill to be brought forward for debate. All right, so let me just get this straight. 
you had one politician who deserves some credit here, Mr. Uh, Todd Stone, who's trying to stop a pay raise. He brought forward a private member's bill, but the government shut it down. So now they're going to be taking an extra $10,000 in salary next year. Now, Carson, you'd think that there'd be more than just one MLA who would understand that now is not exactly the best time to be giving themselves a raise. Absolutely, Franco. But this was all about optics as far as the government was concerned. If there was any debate whatsoever on this bill and the government looked uh, voted against it, the government MLAs knew. They knew that that would make them look bad. They knew that it's unacceptable for politicians to be voting to give themselves pay raises. The government wanted to kill this legislation, and they knew the only way they could kill it by saving, while saving face was by waiting out the clock, which is exactly what they did here. You know, call me crazy, but if you don't want to look bad, don't do bad things. If you don't want to look bad, don't give yourself a pay raise coming from the pockets of taxpayers who are struggling. Okay, but let's get into the the nuts and bolts here, Carson. Let's dive a little deeper into the policy. Um, you say that these BC politicians are going to be giving themselves an extra $10,000, uh, but why don't you just break down exactly what it is the MLAs and the Premier in British Columbia are already making? Yeah, absolutely. So you're right. The MLAs in Victoria are giving themselves a $10,000 pay raise on April 1st. It's a lot of money and it's coming at a terrible time. As far as I'm concerned, this is probably the most tone deaf thing that the Victoria politicians and bureaucrats could possibly be doing right now. That's saying a lot. It is. Right now, backbench MPs or sorry, MLAs, they make about $115,000 a year just in base salary. The premier, now he makes about $220,000 a year. Again, that's just base salary. When we're talking about politician pay, you and I both know that base salary is just the tip of the iceberg. On top of base salary, these politicians take home about $22,800 every single year for their housing allowance. Well, then there's the per diem on top of that. Just to come to Victoria and sit in the legislature, just to do their jobs, MLAs take home around an additional $61 a day, which shakes out to about $4,300 per legislative session. Well, then there's the travel expenses we need to talk about, Franco. We've got documents showing that just one government MLA billed taxpayers more than $12,000 in mileage for driving around his constituency. And here's the kicker. It was in an electric car. So yeah, they already receive very, very generous compensation from taxpayers. And now they're just giving themselves another $10,000 more a year. Hold on a second. Um, you said that a, a, an MLA, a backbencher, while collecting dust, is also collecting $115,000 a year salary. The premier is getting $220,000 a year base salary. But then you also mentioned a per diem. So just extra cash on top of their salary just to do their job, which presumably is what the salary is being paid for. What? Yeah, that's exactly right, Franco. A backbencher already makes, already makes $115,000 a year, which is going to be topped off with an extra $10,000 pay raise on April 1st. Add on another $22,800 for housing allowances, and your backbench MLA is in line for about $147,800 next year. On top of that, 
they are paid $61 for every single day that they are outside of their constituency on government business. The legislature sits in Victoria for about 70 days in a normal year, which means that just for showing up to work, these MLAs are collecting an extra $4,300. You know, you'd think that there'd just be more politicians who would be saying enough is enough. And, you know, we need to respect the taxpayers money right now and and that now would really be the worst possible time to be giving themselves a pay raise yeah it's truly disgusting franco and you know unfortunately we're seeing politicians taking pay raises not just here in bc but across the country now federal mps they make one hundred and eighty nine thousand five hundred dollars which is 10 grand more than they did before the start of the pandemic cabinet ministers well, they gave themselves a $15,000 raise, meaning that they're now making more than $279,900 a year. Last year, Trudeau, well, he took home a cool $372,000. In Ontario now, Ford didn't exactly give his MLAs a blanket pay raise, but what he did do was increase the amount of parliamentary secretaries as a backdoor way of giving his political friends a raise. But you know what? There's also some good news at the provincial level. In Nova Scotia, they recalled Parliament to prevent a politician's raise. In Alberta, MLAs, the Premier, and every single UCP staffer all took pay cuts to save the taxpayers' money right now. Yeah, I mean, we certainly have seen some good news. Uh, The thing with Alberta is that we saw their MLAs before the pandemic in the summer of 2019. They took a 5% pay cut. The premier, uh, Mr. Kenny at the time, took a 10% pay cut. And then you had the UCP UCP staffers during the pandemic. They took a 7% pay cut. So uh, certainly it's not like, I mean, certainly it's not the law of gravity that raises and, and pay raises always have to happen in government. Uh, The CTF identified 30 jurisdictions around the world that cut pay at some point during the pandemic. In New Zealand, um, you actually saw their prime minister, their ministers, and their top bureaucrats all take a 20% pay cut right at the beginning of the pandemic to show solidarity with the struggling taxpayers who are paying their salaries. Now, Carson, a constant uh, message throughout this whole little back and forth you and I have going on here is that The problem is that when politicians give themselves a raise, that in effect is coming from taxpayers' pockets at one point in time. Why don't you you kind of explain that little nuance for our listeners? Well, at the end of the day, higher pay for politicians means a higher tax bill. It's that simple. In BC, we're seeing the government bring in more and more and more taxes at a time when literally no one can afford them. Last month, the provincial government raised taxes on used cars. They're also introducing a new tax if you renovate a home. It's crazy, Franco. It's absolute craziness. Do you remember seeing $240 uh, per liter fuel prices at gas stations in BC? I do. Well, that 75 cent carbon tax, it's also set to jet right up in April. Same thing applies right across Canada. And remember, politicians need to push for savings in the bureaucracy. But it'll be hard for politicians to tell bureaucrats to find savings when they're just lining their pockets with an extra $10,000 a year. And of course, Franco, there's the tale of two downturns we've seen since the very beginning of this pandemic. Government, bureaucrats, they have it fine. Everyone else has been struggling. 
One in five Canadians are skipping meals. There's record-breaking demand at food banks. Now is not the time for politicians to be giving themselves a pay raise. It's that simple. Yeah, should be a no-brainer. I mean, I, I heard you say a stat, 75 cents a liter. Uh, in Vancouver, listeners, no, seriously, if you add up all the provincial and federal gas taxes, and even municipal, that you're paying in Vancouver, it's about 75 cents a liter that is just in taxes. All we see is taxes going up, 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 and up. And unfortunately, politician pay is also going up, up, and up. Carson, uh, good job holding these uh, politicians accountable in your neck of the woods. Thanks so much, Franco. It's always a pleasure to be on here chatting with you.